Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with co-founder and chief strategist Justin Foster. He is the co-founder of Massive Change, an advisory firm dedicated to supporting business leaders who are called to use their status and brand to take on systematic change. In addition, he serves as a fractional CMO, a brand poet, and a CMO coach. Along a journey that began on a cattle ranch in eastern Oregon, Justin has spent two decades providing unconventional, often heretical, strategic brand coaching to leaders in every sector and industry. He's got a lot of great passion and stories. Enjoy. Yeah, man, it's great to meet you. And I want to begin our conversation with what we went through the for the last three and a half years. How did you get through the pandemic and how did it change you? So so, so the pandemic was a was was part of an, an awakening. I actually wrote I started writing a series of essays that started in January of 2020. And I actually published them at the end of 2021. And I called it Essays from a Pandemic. And it said, and the subtitle was and a spiritual awakening and a whole new life. So for me, the pandemic was sort of the external representation of, of upheaval and disorder and the breaking down of systems and things that was a mirror of what was happening inside of me as I went through this significant personal transformation at that time. And um, so that's kind of more on a, on a spiritual side of things, I guess you could say, or consciousness side of things. The other aspect of the pandemic is that it, 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 it affirmed a saying I've had for a long time. I grew up on a cattle ranch. I grew up a hunter, a backpacker, outdoorsman. And so I've had this saying for a long time that nature kills pretense. Yeah. Nature does not care about your belief systems, your ideologies, you know, any of that stuff. And I, what I, what I saw was, was the, the pretense of stability was uh, exposed. Um, and finally, I, I marvel at, I mean, there's, there's obviously tra the tragedy of all the deaths and the, the tragedy uh, within, especially within our, country of sort of this weird divide that it that it lengthened this divide that we have that I think is less about political differences and more about reality differences. Um and but at the same time it it oh, it showed the resiliency of the human spirit. Um there was that um Spanish actor who um decided to because he was staying with his elderly grandmother and decided to live stream conversations with her and she made had millions of followers and you know there's so many different examples of how people took that time and used it to serve and grow and create and and that you only do that stuff really when there's a when you're challenged yeah i find looking around that there's a level of me that's like wow we all made it through this because we all saw some things there's a level mm -hmm. of just, you know, because th this didn't just happen in one part of the world. No, I mean, it happened right. to all of us everywhere. And every single thing that we did was was altered. So there's a level of resiliency and, and hopefully growth that we all went through that just makes maybe us moving into a more enlightened era of humanity, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And it seemed to it seemed to Joe, it seemed to enhance the enlightenment of some or the consciousness level of some. And <laughs> So enhance the lack of consciousness from others. Yeah. Um, 
and, and the lower consciousness. And, and again, it's showing this very strange, like I said, reality divide between yeah. how people, various people experienced the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and it, it also showed that it's tough to be in charge of anything. So that's why I didn't, I live in Texas. I'm not a Greg, Greg Abbott fan by at all, but I think he did the best he could in Texas because I'm not a governor and I've never had to make those kind of decisions. The same with, you know, being the CEO of a big giant company. And and it it showed that it takes a leadership is, is, is a crucible. And, and there were, there were moments from the Biden administration to, to the, the governors, to businesses of, you know, really good leadership on how this was handled. And I think that's the thing that I, realize about my childhood no matter what political lines or whoever it was it really is important to have a leader that instills confidence and calm and warmth into the people it's huge right Right. so that's that's one thing i will never ever take for granted again exactly yeah (laughs) you know um so let's get to the heart and soul of what you do for a living i'm going to put you in front of a bunch of elementary school kids Second, third graders, it's career day. And one of the little ones looks up and says, what do you do for a living? How do you answer them? Um, It's funny you say that because when the work I do, I ask that question is, what would you say to a 10-year-old about what you do? So so now I'm challenged to say it back. Turn in the Um, tables. (laughs) Yes, turn in the tables. So I would say to that second or third grader that um, inside of you, in your heart, where you feel feelings, where you feel love, or maybe sometimes you feel anger, is a uh, a job for you to do in the world that somehow everyone will benefit from that. And I help people find out what that is and build a life around it. So what did you want to be in the third grade? What was your dream to grow up and become? I wanted to not be there. <laughs> I, uh, I, I've always had, uh, I've always been a bit of a, an escapist, especially as a child. I grew up in a, in a religious cult, Christian fundamentalist cult. I grew up in a very violent home and I spent many hours gazing out the window at the mountains going, I'd, I'd rather be there. Um, yeah. and, but from a, from a career standpoint, probably around that time, I've always been fascinated by how things work. I think I, around that time is when I, I, I thought I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer um, and, or a, you know, something to do that where I could invent things. Yeah. So. so let's hone in on this path that you're on. Where were you born and raised and what were some of the fundamental seeds that were put into you to want to help others? Yeah. So I was, I was born in October of 1970 in Oregon. I spent my first 22 years in Oregon. And as I mentioned, I, I was raised in a, in a fundamentalist cult. That would be the best way to describe it. And on a ranch. Um, and, and so I had this very weird split life because at home it was violent and oppressive and, um, but the ranch life was liberating. And my relationship with my grandmother in particular was a saving grace in that time. And so I had these sort of shapers of me, both from the positive and the negative, more the negative than the positive, but uh, but still it was there. And um, underneath that was this empath, um, this empathic person that just 
felt everything deeply. And I, my name is Justin, which is the root of that is justice. So I had a sense as a kid of injustice. Of, of, I could see it. So, and I loved history. So I remember like when we played Cowboys and Indians, I always was the, I always was the Indians. And I would argue with people about why Custer deserved what he got. You know, like I was that kind of kid that argued about history. Um, and, and I was mystified. I'm still mystified uh, by the veneration of the Confederacy, considering what they stood for. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was 13, I read this big, thick book about the Holocaust. and was obviously horrified. And this deep sensitivity to injustice, which in many ways kind of went into an incubator because I didn't pursue it right away. What I wanted to first do was liberate myself. So that's what I did. I moved out when I was 17 and never really looked back. Um, it wasn't until years later, right around the time of the pandemic, actually, that I had this reconnection to that part of me that believed deeply in justice. And really, it was George Floyd's murder that sparked that, like reawakened that, like, oh, wait a minute, this is a familiar feeling. I'm just in a very different place now than I was, obviously, when I was five or six years old. So who's been a hero for you? You obviously had to have grabbed onto some pretty magnanimous people to be inspired, but who's a hero for you? Well, do you mean like from a historical perspective or people I knew? Just probably either or. I mean, the Venn diagram can blur, but whoever really contributed to you being who you are today. Yeah, I think, you know, with people that I actually knew, my grandmother, Maxine Foster, was a huge influence on me in so many ways. Um, I had a, 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 there was a minister in that church who was kind of an outlaw. Like he didn't, you know, within the side of the oppressive insular system, he was sort of an outlaw. And, and John Sterling was his name. And he was a big influence on me. And that really was it as a kid. I didn't have many positive influences, but I had a, I had a bit of a hero complex. So I had these certain heroes that I loved and I would read like Louis L'Amour, the Western author. Um, I'd read all of his books. In fact, my oldest son, Logan, is named after a Louis L'Amour character, Logan Sackett. Or I read about historical figures like Francis Marion, yeah. the Swamp Fox who fought the British in the Revolutionary War that the movie The Patriot sort of loosely based on. Um, I read about Harriet Tubman. I read about and uh, I read about, um, uh, you know, Gandhi, you know, these other other like what now we call history shapers. And I saw them risking um, everything in order to follow a conviction. And that was deeply imp impressed upon me by these various people. So if you can meet anybody alive on the planet right now, who would it be? Who would you love to meet and talk to? Um, I would say, you know, it, it, I like to challenge people. I like to debate. So I, I don't, it wouldn't be necessarily somebody that I would get inspiration from. It would be someone that, you know, what it would be, it would be Mike Johnson. Yeah. The Speaker yeah. of the House. And I don't know if I can't remember if this podcast is rated R or not, but I would have some choice, <laughs> choice questions for him. Good for you. Especially around the idea that um, if if Jesus was in the role of undercover boss, what would he think about that? 
what would how would Mike Johnson respond to that? Yeah. And I find him to be kind of this symbol of the great threats to consciousness and liberty in our country. I agree. And, and I would want to sit down with him and I'm very good at talking to people I disagree with in a way that it doesn't start a fight. Yeah. And I would love to do that. That would be that would be interesting. I wouldn't want to do it with Trump because he's he there there would be no there's not there's no there there. It's like trying to put a nail in jello, you know. It's but I think with somebody like Mike Johnson, at least I could have a conversation with him and 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 say, hey, what are you what are you doing here? There's still probably a light on in that house no matter how far away Mike is, but that light in, in Trump's house has been dark for a long time. For a long time. Right. And there's no, I mean, you take someone that is fully consumed by narcissism. Um, and, and I think someone like Mike Johnson is fully consumed by theology, um, and Christian nationalism, but there's still a little spark in there. I think I could kind of get a, a yep. little thread. I could get a, start pulling on. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of, you know, kind of motivations, what is that for you every day to get up out of bed, to live the life that you live, to help people? What is that motivation for you? Well, I have tattooed on my right arm, love more. It's a, it's a heart that my younger son, Caden, um, and who's a professional artist designed it. And that's really the, the thing is that love is a verb. Love is action. And you know, that starts in my own home with my with my wife and our and my stepson who live with lives with us and then my grown kids and our extended blended family. And in in recent months, um, it really that love more has been extended uh, to the what I do for a living. Um, uh, Virginia and I, my, my wife and I started an advisory firm, a coaching firm called Massive, which is specifically designed to support and equip business leaders who want to take on systemic change. And that is sort of the waking conviction every day. Um, there's a shadow to that of doubt. Um, but there's a, there's also the, 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 the fire, the, the fire that won't go out <laughs> and what I call long passion or long purpose. Um, and that's all kind of rooted around this idea that as a, what I call a swam, a straight white American male is that I, that, that things are not going to change with us, with people that look like me as bystanders. I have a t-shirt that says silence is not an option. And that conviction of using those elements as platforms, if you will, to go make people uncomfortable that are also swams. I, I think about that every day. You know, I've, I've said this a few times and you may appreciate this, but you know, I do jazz radio and I remember right around the time before it's probably like May, we were all swimming through this pandemic, trying to figure it out. So I started doing more interviews. So I would go on iTunes and find new jazz artists. And I found this young man and I sent a note to him. And the next day he comes back and he said something along the lines of, you know, thank God th this was meant to be. I just sent like 350 notices out to all these radio people and I didn't send it to you and you reached out to me. Mm. And his name is David Billingsley. He's in Minneapolis and he's a pianist. He's a really great guy. So we interview and he was ecstatic. We had a great interview and I released it. 
and I released it the day after the George Floyd murder. And mm -hmm. he lives up there. And I started watching all of his posts on social media, how bleak and, and Meyer was. And as you can attest at that time, there was a real wakening up of a lot of minorities that, that needed to happen that said, I'm, I'm done. Okay. I'm, I'm not playing this whole placating thing anymore. And I felt it. And I remember him at one point put a note out and said, I can't even go into my target right now because that's the target headquarters and that's where he lived and that's where Floyd, that's where everything happened. He said, it's looted. It's, I don't know what I'm going to eat. And, and I just felt his desperation. And I called him the next day and I said, David, I'm just some white guy in Kansas city that has a radio show and we convene, but I'm telling you right now, you better stay in this. Do not give up. Your light is going to inspire more people to ensure that this Floyd thing doesn't happen anymore. So you can do what you want with this, but I'm telling you right now, I want you to just hear me and just understand you need to keep it going. And he wrote me uh, uh, his CD. He wrote a huge long note on it and sent it in the mail a week later and said that was a pretty big thing for him. And those yeah. are things, like you said, with the t-shirts and things. We have moments where we can say, you know what? We, we have to help these people that are doing good work. And unfortunately, the forces in our society are in a bad way, man. And we know that. But if we can do our little part to help people spread the light that need it, because there's so many little kids that he influences through his music and mm -hmm. urban renewal that need that. And if he right. decided to say, I'm out, yeah, it's not, not going to be okay. Well, and, and Joe, I think the same thing applies even in with us as just white dudes, you know, that the things are not going to change if we're silent. If we just yeah. sit by and go, oh, you know, that's your thing to take care of, you know, yep. is we, we collective, I mean, we really are the people that look like us created this system. So to separate yourself from that is, uh, is, is um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's why like uh, Eli, Eli Weisel, the Nazi hunter, said, "You know, the opposite of uh, uh, love, opposite of hate is the opposite of love is not hate; it's apathy." Yeah, and there is this sense of what that, um, it, and you can take take any issue, take any social issue, any social pain, and that when you try to use, you try to ex, um, explain it away. You contribute to its perpetuation. Yeah, um, and it's it's also similar to the another conviction that I have was after January six because you know that they kind of bookended. I mean, they weren't exactly because Floyd's murder was in I think in May, like you said, and then the pandemic fully spiked, and then the election, and then January six is like that thing, the very essence of what we need to preserve in order to create systemic change was under attack. Yeah, and. That was like, holy crap, man! This is, this is my, now my system is under attack. Yeah, and I can't be quiet about that. I can't, yeah. I can't be someone that's like, well, that's just the other side, or this is a difference in politics or a difference in policy. No, it's not. It's a difference of morality. Yeah. That's the difference. Absolutely. So, of all the things that you've done and overcome in your life up to this point, what are you the proudest of? Oh man, you and your good questions. Um, <laughs> coincidentally, I have another tattoo on my other arm, also designed by my son, of a lion with three arrows in it and a, holding a banner that says, Be Not Afraid. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna take that and say not say most proud, but the top three proud things is one is that I integrated integrated my childhood trauma. I integrated it. I I I didn't run from it. I didn't. I don't think you actually heal from it because I think yeah. I think it's um, evolutionary and in evolution pain is integrated. Not you don't necessarily heal from it. Uh, that's number one. Number two is walking away from things that no longer serve me, no longer serve the interest of my soul. And there's a long list of those, but they're significant. Yeah. Um, and then the third one was the basically getting to know my own mind and tendencies. Um, the work I've done with consciousness and thoughts and emotions. And, you know, when you think you are your thoughts and emotions, you are your own prisoner. You're a prisoner of your own mind. Yeah. And that work to liberate myself from the social conditioning and the trauma conditioning of my own mind has been extraordinarily painful to do, um, but also extraordinarily liberating. Um, to be able to basically do something I didn't know was possible, which was learn how to be happy. Yeah. So everyone out there has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your clients, colleagues, but you are in control. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? Well, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a soul first you know i don't i can't remember who said it originally but we're not humans having a spiritual experience we're souls having a human experience yeah i think it was Wayne dyer but it could have been somebody else um and so i first identify as that as a soul and that i am a trichotomous creature is that i have i have you know that i'm an animal i'm a mammal <laughs> um with a soul and with a neocortex um and so that's the human. So I identify as a human. And then I, I identify strongly with the masculine, not even really related to gender, uh, as much more related to energy than masculine. And that the role of the conscious masculine is to be a protector, usually of other people's autonomy. And I very much identify as that protector um, of justice, of rightness, Um and then within that, you know, there's certain roles I identify as a as a father and a husband and an entrepreneur and a, you know, author, poet, things like that. But those are more roles that kind of define how I'm how I operate in life. But the deepest identity is is a human soul with a calling. So if you could get into a time machine and go back in time and see one event in human history with your own eyes, where are you going? Uh well, it would have been pretty cool to know Jesus back yeah. in the day. That'd yeah. be awesome. I would I would do that. I would for sure. That would seems like that would be on the list. But really what I wanted, I want to be in the moment because um, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but that's the author that wrote um, Sapiens. Yeah. He talks about these and, he, you know, he's an atheist and a scientist. And he talks about these moments in history that make no sense. There's no scientific explanation. For example, why is why is there all around the world deep inside of caves basically the same paintings with no interaction between them yeah and what i would want to i would like to be there when humans reached a level of consciousness where they started to create yeah started to make art started to make music 
So you go way back to cave paintings and drum beats and um, dancing and all that. I'd like to be there in that moment where we we started to actually understand that that's part of what we're here to do. That would yeah. be cool. That would be cool. What a nexus moment. So anyone out there that wants to learn more about you, reach out to you, hire you, see your work, where can they go? Best thing to do is go to massivechange.co and you can look at our website and from there, you can go to all of the places to learn about me. I'm also very findable on Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm at Foster Thinking on Instagram. I write a lot of poetry and, and musings that I, I post there. So, but best place to go to learn about me and my work and my work with my my wife, Virginia, who's my business partner, um, massivechange.co. This has been such a pleasure, man. What a titan. Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure. Keep spilling the light Thank into you. the world. We need it. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. You for creating the Thanks platform. for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, business, spirituality, music, and more from around the globe. Our esteemed theme music was composed and produced by the great E.E. E. Pointer of Kansas City's River Cow Orchestra. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. 